Welcome to Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, a podcast that asks, are we ready to reset the landscape of public safety? Whether you're a veteran of criminal justice, a newcomer who wants to foster change for the next generation, or someone actively involved in the field grappling with the complexities of decision-making, you're invited to the conversation. In each episode, you'll hear from a panel of four highly respected criminal justice thought leaders for an unscripted, unedited, and vulnerable discussion about the future changes needed for policing. Together, they hold more than 100 years of experience and are using our insight to help evolve practices, policies, training, and community relationships. They're challenging themselves and you to get introspective and question the status quo. Let's dive into today's topic. Hello and welcome back to The Den. This is Jessica. Excited to bring a bit of a perspective to our conversation here in The Den today is back in 2022 when Harold, Rodney, and Steve and I were talking about a new police force or a new guardian force that balances out the needs of the victims as well as public safety concerns. We ended up going down a bit of a pathway talking about how do police officers or police chiefs think about their jurisdictions. It was right at the end of a conversation we had in 2022. I'm going to let you in on some of those conversations or some pieces of that conversation here in just a little bit. But that's where I really wanted to have a discussion with an analyst who looks at things virtually and why the space and place thought process around looking at a jurisdiction is really important. So let's enter the den to the 2022 conversation with Rodney, Harold, and Stephen, myself about how districts or jurisdictions are divided. So Jessica, uh, let me give you a visual on that, okay? Okay. Let's just call your A, B's and C, A, B, C, and D columns or silos because that's what they are. They're managed by a sergeant. And that sergeant's job is to get those A, B, C, D squads out and in every day. So they, the sergeant makes sure they go to work, they come home safe, they handle the work that's, that's assigned to them while they're out there, and that's one responsibility. But then you have a sergeant, you're ahead of me. Then you have a sergeant that is also, or some person that is, managing those A, B, C, D people laterally. In other words, you as the the commander here? No, commander's going to run the whole show. But when you get down there where Jarvis has got, where you've got the circle there, where Jarvis has got the little body, you're going to have sergeants. So let's just say sergeants for the sake of argument. A, B, and C, and D. Running A, B, C, and D. He or she is going to get them in and out every day. Okay. And go make sure they get their work done while they're there, okay? But then you've got a sergeant that is lateral across A, B, C, and D who is managing the work, the communication and work for that A, B, C, and D and coordinating the work across all shifts. Could that be a sergeant, Harold, or should that be the lieutenant? No, I don't care. I agree. That I don't think if I'm going to manage or coordinate across all three then I need to be able to tell Sergeant A, B, C, and D what I needs agree. to be done. And yep. if I'm a sergeant myself, I can't yep. do that. Yep. And we found that. You know, we found that. Yeah. But I'm completely good with that. That's what your lieutenants do. Right. Jessica, what you have here is not the district. I think it's the area. It's the area that A, B, C, and D is, is responsible for over a 24-hour period. Let's just use the word beat. Yeah. It's the beat. Let's get away from beat. It's a response area. It's the geographic area, whatever it is. How do you tie it back to the community? How do you how do you make make the community feel that you know they don't call their neighborhood beat? So what would we call it so that the community can relate to this is where I, I live. So when we have 
We are community services folks, like now, today, like, and perhaps even in the 80s when we started to do like the whole community policing model was that you had people who coordinated like the neighborhood watch or the neighborhood groups. The neighborhood could be really small. It could just be a few blocks, right? Or it could be one neighborhood, like organized neighborhood, or it could be a series of apartment complexes in a certain area. Because, you know, the police districts, beats, reporting areas, those are all arbitrary, just a way like to distribute people. But this, one of the cities I'm working in now has this, like they've, you know, they've identified like they have, I don't know, 180 neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So a small city, under 250,000 people. But that's how the community identifies themselves as na- as these particular neighborhoods. Some areas aren't necessarily defined because they don't have a neighborhood leader, which is the current challenge, right? Of like those neighborhoods that don't have their own collective efficacy of organization that need police services to do some of that organization for them. And that model, assigning a miniature unit to 106 neighborhoods would be really difficult. I really like the way Charlotte did this. There were 13 divisions, and each one of those divisions had a community or area name, whether it was University Division, whether it was Steel Creek Division, whether it was Eastway Division. It identified a a community. I guess that's the best word for it. It was based on a community versus District 1, District 2, District 3, Beat 127, Beat 150. If you ask a citizen where they live, I live in the university area. I live in the Steel Creek area. I live in North Tryon area. So people could identify their area. And I really love that because it really brought the community into the fold. District 26, you know, what is District 26? It doesn't tell me. Or North Side, South Side, East Side, West Side, Southwest Side. You know, I really like naming your yeah. district by neighborhoods. And it may be a little more challenging when you get down to the smaller geographic areas mm-hmm. because, you know, my neighborhood is my neighborhood. And, and that's challenging because some communities say, hey, I'm not, that's not me. Yeah. And there's judgment, right? Like when you say you live it, like I was saying at Harold earlier, I'm in Midtown Phoenix. That means something yeah. if you understand Phoenix, right? Right. Well, one, it means that I'm literally in the middle of the valley. <laughs> I'm equidistant in other directions. But it also, like, for people who live in North Scottsdale, when I say I live in Midtown, they're like, oh, like you're a city dweller. You're also in, like, a part of the community that kind of bridges both a historical and kind of, um, you know, historical district, as well as a district that's very LGBTQ friendly which the historical district and the LGBTQ community have very different opinions. And everyone from the outside of Midtown of Phoenix has very different opinions of it in, in, in town. And you can feel that as you go from a certain set of streets to a certain set of avenues, yeah. right? Across the central avenue. So the historic district is on the avenue side, which is West Valley. And then the first couple of blocks, like maybe central to seventh, maybe about 12th street, is a midtown Coronado. So very artsy. There's a lot of artists, art studios, like very, you know, everybody has avocado toast on their damn menu, things like that. Uh, But it brings a lot of judgment. And I would say that Scottsdale brings a lot of judgment to people too. Like you go there and it's like McLarens and Porsches and Lamborghinis, you know, it's like $5.7 million sitting with you at stoplight sometimes. So the communities are very much like personality, slash characteristic, but identifiable for everyone who lives in that area, for sure. And we have not been able to, to figure out how to how to do that, how to, how to make our, you know, even drawing deep boundaries, people get upset where, you know, why did you cut through this neighborhood or how, to, or how come you cut off half of this neighborhood? But I think you have to be aware of, of how communities self-identify themselves and respect that to some degree and have the ability to capture data and other things based on on their understanding of their geographical boundaries or their community boundaries. And it's hard though, it's very difficult. 
Now that you've listened to a little bit about their perspectives of both what they thought was beneficial, but also just how difficult it is to understand geographical boundaries and how the community sees itself, let me welcome Neil Hubbard, who's a research associate for Idea Analytics. Neil has been mapping crime data and socioeconomic data across this country over the last about 10 years or so. And we get into a lot of debates in different jurisdictions and with analysts or police officers about how should we be separating out districts or reporting areas, as well as thinking about neighborhoods and how communities see themselves and how aligning those things can be both helpful when you're organizing crime reduction strategies, but then potentially also hurtful when the analyst or other folks don't understand kind of what superimposed boundaries do. So let me welcome Neil to the den and let him give a bit of an introduction for himself. Neil, welcome to the den. And if you'd like to introduce yourself or just give a little bit of context of your background in terms of mapping and looking at crime data, that would be helpful for everyone that's listening. Sure. Thanks, Jessica. I'm excited to be on the den here. My background, I supported the Department of Defense as an information assurance analyst a long time ago, and then I moved on to supporting the Department of Justice in a variety of different training and technical assistance programs out of the Office of Justice Programs and BJA. Within those opportunities, I began my mapping career and just plotting, you know, dots on a map. And as I moved forward, I became a uh, intelligence analyst for a fusion center in Northern Virginia for a federal task force. And then from there, moving on to doing more in-depth mapping and analysis with ID analytics and supporting its, its constituents there. But I, I'm certified in ArcGIS Pro. I've taken a variety and many different geospatial training classes, worked with probably over 50 analysts at this point talking through mapping techniques and how to do different geospatial analyses for specific projects. So I'm excited to talk here. Um, I feel like I'm the analyst in the room with a bunch of decision makers. So I'll, uh, I'm going to have some fun here kind of talking through what what the analysts may be thinking when the leaders say one thing and the analysts may be thinking another. So I'm excited to be here and talk about it. Yeah, well, thank you. I think this is where you know, and the work that we do around the country, we're constantly demonstrating the difference of what leadership is thinking about data and how they're thinking about their jurisdiction and how the officers and the crime analysts think about the jurisdiction and where things go. And so I think this is where I was talking with Rodney and Harold and Steve. I said, oh, we have a lot of feelings here at Idea Analytics about mapping and, you know, what we would call perhaps proper mapping versus some challenges to mapping. So I want to kind of start you off with one of the kind of, I guess, bigger questions here is that we get a lot of questions from police departments about how they should change their districts or their reporting areas or or if they should. And you have some opinions about like what the, you know, geospatial folks say and, and kind of evaluating space and place. And so I guess I'll I'll let you kind of get thinking and talking about what are those challenges for police agencies when they're thinking about changing their districts or reporting areas. Yes, this is a great great conversation. I I know, as you mentioned, a lot of the police leaders are always constantly thinking, how do they leverage their resources better? How do they put their officers in the right spot at the right time and able to support each other in in emergencies? So this is definitely one of the, the biggest topics probably in one of the policing field as personnel resources start to start to struggle here. But I think some of the biggest challenges that police face is those personnel constraints and and making sure that number one priority is those officer safety. And to be sure, like if they draw beats in a certain way, and they may have a domestic violence issue or a calls for service issue that involves more than one officer responding, how do they ensure that officers are responding in an adequate time to protect the community, but also to protect their officers all at the same time? So it's it's always, a, if I draw this beat too big, if this beat is too large, it's going to take too long for an officer to help respond across the entire city. Or do we have roving officers based on like, fluid throughout the entire jurisdiction? So it's it's a common question that the police do face. So they're mostly police are challenged with the resource, the resources problem. 
while the police face that problem, there are other issues that, that are involved with those police jurisdictions, right? Like those different, uh, those different defined boundaries within a city that are, can, can at times be pretty arbitrary. You really have to be cognizant of three different, three different types or three different categories when you're considering these police boundaries. And I would say it's the first is the community. The community have to be considered the most as well as police history and patterns of what the department and what the officers are responding to and how they're working within the city is the second consideration that needs to be accounted for. And the final one, which is actually kind of funny how it's the third one here, is the geography of the city. That also needs to be be considered with these boundaries. I'll start with geography as one of the main considerations here, just because that's the last one I mentioned. But when you're thinking of the geography of an entire city, you have to start thinking through what's there. Where are the bridges? Are there rivers? Are there any other natural boundaries that you can leverage as part of these police boundaries that make the most sense? What's logical? What are the ingress and egress areas or the city arteries of the city? What makes the most sense from a policing perspective? As well as drive time and response times, enabling officers to travel across the city easily, across or transcend several beats simultaneously to respond to a priority one call. There's also something I call the squint test. When it comes to these type of decisions, it's, it's kind of like when you're putting up lights around a tree or something, maybe for the holidays. You do the squint test and see, is there any gaps? Does this even make sense? When you start to redraw these boundaries is, am I drawing a boundary that's going right through somebody's backyard? Or am I leveraging something that already exists that was created by professionals, something similar as the Census Bureau? That makes complete sense, right? Like if some of the biggest priorities are the officer safety and ensuring that people can get to those calls to help their fellow officers and also respond timely enough to calls for people in need that 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 geography of, you know, is there a bridge? Is there a railroad? Is there some other boundary that's going to prevent them from getting there fast or get them there in a timely manner? I guess when we think about drawing the boundaries with some of those natural geographies, how does that create a bit of a mess from an analyst standpoint? That it's not going to be these perfect squares or rectangles like everybody likes to see things in a grid. How does that challenge an analyst to kind of pass that squint test there? You can see how even if you look at the state boundaries, around the United States, as well as county boundaries around the United States, you can really see the evolution of how boundaries are drawn. If you look on the East Coast, where a lot of the the boundaries were drawn maybe hundreds of years ago, a lot of the boundaries followed natural boundaries, such as the rivers, lakes, streams, etc. But if you go West and you look at a state like Colorado, which is a rectangle, if you look at Texas, a lot of their counties are, are rectangular or square. They have right angles and they are splitting major cities right down the middle. If you look at Dallas, Fort Worth, there's like three different counties and two major cities all in one small area. And like that transcend three counties, that makes a lot of logistical problems. While the East Coast has its own issues with that, but the rectangles also cause their own problems. So it's because of that, they're taking into account Let's keep this simple from a one perspective, but it also causes problems elsewhere. So when you're thinking about policing and drawing these boundaries, if there is a giant interstate that blocks or that runs through right through the middle of a beat and it prevents officers from going and responding to a call or they have to like get they have to like merge onto the highway and then essentially get off immediately just to go across their beat. That's not a good beat boundary. You're preventing officer movement and things need to be potentially be drawn differently based off of, you know, those different thoroughfares as well as the rivers. If, if a bridge is blocked, what happens? If there are protests happening on a bridge and it's the only way in and out of a specific beat, what happens? So a lot of these things have to take it into account when you're thinking of these, when drawing these or, or changing these boundaries. But what I was kind of like going into first, like the Census Bureau, they've been doing this for a long time. And they take into all these things. They take in geographic boundaries, natural boundaries. They take into account population densities. So typically when I'm working with analysts or working with the departments, I say, let's start there. Let's see what the, the every 10 years they may evolve or change the boundaries. So what are they doing? And if that requires the department to think through, hey, maybe every 10 years, we should relook at our boundaries. So I think that's important to think about is departments should be evolving with their population, with their city boundaries. If they are expanding and there is housing developments going up in the north or west or east or south of the city, and the city limits are, are pushing 
that requires the police department to respond and change. Otherwise, you're going to end up with one police, like one beat or district that is massive, and you potentially leave an officer stranded by themselves navigating through the suburbs. And then you may have one officer stuck in the middle of the city in the urban area who is just overwhelmed. It's a careful balance. It goes from like the squint test to let's keep it simple, but also sometimes the analysis paralysis where you overthink it and you overdo it and you try to take too many things into consideration and then you throw up your hands and you just don't know what to do. So you draw a line right now, down the middle of the map, which again, isn't the correct answer, but yeah, <laughs> which we've, we've seen, seen, which seen we've seen that happen. happen. <laughs> some folks have done that just thinking, you know, if I could just divide it into a grid and then put an officer in each part of the grid, then it would work. And sometimes that does help depending on what your city looks like. And sometimes it really, really creates challenges. Well, one of the other things that you mentioned was really important was to really understand the kind of current or past history of police responses and patterns of like, where are police needed the most? And what does that, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of distribution of calls for service look like? Can you talk a little bit about why evaluating that type of information, either with or without boundaries, can be helpful in kind of determining any changes to boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So officers are responding to calls for service, or they're proactively initiating calls for service. So you have two different types. You have the public initiated and the police initiated. So typically, when you're looking at drawing these boundaries, you always want to take into account, where is the public requesting assistance of the police. What are the commonalities there? What are the the biggest types of calls? So if you're having a lot of calls of domestic violence in a certain part of the area, a certain part of the jurisdiction, that's going to require two officers on that scene for at least usually around 30 minutes. And that, that takes a lot of resources away, potentially from a different district, when two officers have to respond every time a domestic happens. So it's really important to really look at the data when you're planning beats, because if you know you have, you know, typically you may have the suburbs in one area or a more rural area where the the streets are long, there's not a high population density versus an urban area where there's a lot of people stacked on top of each other. So thinking if if you plug one officer in in the rural area and and you plug four in the urban area, you're trying to balance out the officers per civilian or per citizen. That's one way to think of it, but you want to do that calls for service analysis, right? See, where is the public calling for help, as well as where are the police also initiating the contact with the police? So because that also takes into account taking time of an officer not to be roaming or not to be proactively policing or, you know, just being present in a community. So it's it's really important to take in, to use the data to understand what are my top five calls for service or public initiated calls for service? And how long are officers staying on those calls? And how many officers are, by per policy, needed to respond to a certain type of calls for service? That is really important when you're really kind of doing that workload analysis, understanding how many officers are required per hour in this specific beat. Well, what if we shifted the beat 2,000 feet west? How many more domestics may occur 2,000 feet to the west? And how does that impact things if we if those beats were changed, you know, five years ago when we're looking at a five-year analysis? So it's really important to kind of look back and, and look at that type of information that police departments have available to them. And analysts can definitely do that type of analysis. How long, what's the average response time in a specific police beat? If it's in that rural area, you know, the response time may be a lot higher than something like a like an urban area. And that potentially means you have to like tighten the defined boundaries or expand them a little bit, depending upon what the data is telling you. I think that's one of the important parts I want to make sure that we call out here is that the response time, ability to move around my my area is one thing. And then the other part is how long am I on a call? Because I can move around. I think you and I both like a lot of sport analogies, right? And I always think of, are we playing World Cup soccer or are we playing five-year-old soccer. And the reality is, is that in policing, we, we play a little bit of both. If I have 10 reporting beats, I want to have 10 officers per shift because that means I can put one officer in each reporting area. And, you know, if I think of that as good Ted Lasso reference of, you know, how many folks do I have on the pitch and where are they supposed to stay for those things, then, then I feel really balanced with my resources. But to your point of if a particular officer is handling a certain type of call, 
And that means that they are on scene longer, their availability for other calls is severely hindered, right? And what does that mean for other people that might be responding to help them out or how many people we need in a particular jurisdiction because they're dealing with calls that take up a longer amount of time versus calls that take up a short amount of time. So yeah, I think that's a really important part to think about when you're doing that type of analysis. Right. There's definitely some structured fluidity that needs to be there. And I just I just coined that term. I don't know if that's real or not, but there's a structured fluidity in the sense of of policing when it would be great if you have 10 officers and 10 beats and you just plug one, one cruiser, maybe with two officers in each district or beat. On paper, that looks really good. You're like, oh, you know what? Every car for every beat works out nicely. But then you dive into, you know, minimum staffing levels. Officers are calling out sick, they're not available, and then you have to bring in extra people for overtime. And that all of a sudden there's less people on the pitch to kind of keep up with your analogy here than, than we expected. And now how do we handle that? Defensemen and I have to go up and under the offense, offensive portion of, of the field. What does that mean for the rest of the defense or the rest of the officers and their beats? Do they, do they have to pick up where I am? Does another offensive player have to move back into my beat to make sure that my beat is protected as I'm, as I'm going forward and, and, and being fluid that's the World Cup soccer you're talking there and versus yeah. the five-year-old magnet ball where there's just 10 kids on one ball and they're all just like, they're kind of just moving around the field together, which does happen. Sometimes yeah, when the call service comes in, it's really interesting. All the officers are like, they're, they're just pouring out of the precincts. Like, oh, this call is, like, look at this call. We all have to go. It's interesting. Yeah. And like even the lieutenants are getting out there because they're interested. But that's the magnet ball that obviously like commanders don't want to happen, but they really want to do that type of World Cup type of, ideology, but, and really training officers to understand, like, we understand you have to be fluid and have to protect your other officers in in emergencies, but also the ability to backfill each other and to move into certain locations, maybe among two different districts simultaneously, as one district is left open because of an emergency. It's a hard balance from a police chief standpoint, or even other commander standpoint, because you want your folks to respond and be flexible and go where needed. But at the same time, it might be, you know, like that absence, right? When you leave that part of the pitch open, it might mean that something else happens and there's an accountability piece to that, that that makes it really hard to manage the resource, right? Because we haven't figured out how to be in two places at one time exactly just yet. So, And that's where the data really helps you. So if you know, if, so for example, let's say this is a night shift or, you know, uh, a midnight shift or whatever, some departments all call it different things. If you know that a certain district that is usually doesn't have a lot of calls for service in, in, in the nighttime, I would like that's where the strategy comes in, right? You're using strategic crime analysis to really identify where are the locations, which are the districts that are kind of quiet at night. Typically, if there's anything that happens, it's it's low level, it's not violent. The typical public, the public initiated calls for service aren't aren't priority ones. And how do we we know that the officer in that working that district, they're the individual that would shift to support another officer where there is a pattern of higher priority calls. That's where the strategic crime analysis comes in, right? You're figuring out when and where are the low spots, at least from, from a public calls for service perspective, and who knows, and how do you tell the officers, hey, if something happens, you're the district that responds to district A, B, C, or D versus, you know, another officer responding if something else happens in a different part of the city because of, you know, based off of the data and what's the data telling you. And that's where the analysts are really important to come in there and and show the commanders and say, hey, like from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., this district is dead. Like there's nothing happening. So if you have an officer, one officer per beat, like that one officer in the quiet zone can shift and support as necessary during the winter or during specific seasons or times of the year. Yeah, that's the ultimate ideal, I think, for many agencies, assuming that they're not restricted by kind of shift rules or union rules of being able to say, hey, on Tuesday nights after a certain time, we actually need your resource somewhere else because that's where, you know, the public needs it. And being able to use data that's, you know, routinely analyzed and informed to help them make those decisions, I think is the the utmost goal or, or most ideal goal for most police chiefs. And it is possible, right? We have been able to to do that in several cities. And so it, it should be something that everybody's looking for and, and wanting to achieve. 
So I want to make sure we talk about the first one you mentioned, but also the one that, you know, I think the discussions with Rodney and myself and Steve and, and Harold have said is the most difficult sometimes is to really understand how when geographers are drawing those lines, when we're thinking about all these considerations in terms of, you know, time to drive and police versus public initiated, it's really, you know, how does the community see the neighborhood, right? How does the community see the jurisdiction and and what is important to them? And that almost gets down into like micro places and just neighborhood level versus a group of neighborhoods. But talk to me about how you approach the idea of the community when you're looking at things from a mapping perspective. Sure. As a crime analyst, just because you you are behind a desk and that is that's typically where you are, it doesn't mean they can't go out into the into the neighborhoods, into the community and learn where are the risky places. If you do an analysis and you're seeing a lot of activity in a certain area, right out there with an officer really and get to know it. Talk to the people who live in those neighborhoods and say, hey, what's going on here? And start to get their opinions and get the context of who's who and what's what and when when. It's also important to get like to collect that information and give the opportunity to the community members to think about drawing their own boundaries, which it's 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 kind of it's not it's not crazy. I mean, they know their neighborhoods, they live there. A lot of community members who are invested and have a lot of community a lot of efficacy within their neighborhoods, they can draw the boundary. If you give them a map, they will literally draw the exact boundaries of their neighborhood and say, This is my neighborhood, and this is the name of it right? Yeah. Like this is, yeah. you know, the South side, this is the A zone, or this is, you know, maybe it's an apartment complex's name or something, but given the opportunity and maybe getting those different like focus groups together and saying within this district, let's say the police department is restricted for some, for some reason that they can't change the districts, but at least we can start thinking about the reporting areas or a smaller geographical boundary within a jurisdiction or within a, within a beat or a district. Let's make it a little bit easier to identify or know know what's happening. So if a crime happens in, you know, the A zone, we know to go talk to Sally because Sally is the community leader of that neighborhood. And this is the boundary because she drew the boundary and everyone kind of knows like, oh, that's the A zone and that's the South End. It's, it's possible. There are a lot of there are technologies available that, that allow you to host live community meetings and focus groups to really have everybody take their phone out, draw on a map where they think the neighborhoods are, and it automatically pop up on the screen so everybody can see it, and then a discussion happens. And then you can define it. And then those specific smaller micro areas, micro neighborhoods within a district or beat can then be defined and, and put into place as part of the as part of the geospatial and analytical software and saved. So that is something that can be part of the analysis later when talking about a specific district or the sub-area of a district. Definitely. Uh, we can put a shameless plug for Esri's Survey123 or Esri products yes. in here, just because that is perhaps the most robust and, and definitely the most helpful. I think it's an interesting aspect when I think about the community and how they define themselves is that, right, sometimes the community members, or I would say more than sometimes, we constantly hear from community members that they want to see the police more and that they, you know, right, part of that community policing approach was assign an officer to my area. However, that neighborhood is defined or that area is defined is that they really wanted to have a dedicated assigned officer that they really got to know and the police officer gets to know them. And, you know, we've worked in a lot of agencies that have some type of neighborhood police officer or some other kind of community assigned officer for that aspect. And so it's equally interesting to kind of see how that develops of like, what does the community see themselves as? How do we assign officers there? And then kind of how do we make sense of it when sometimes they see that, that part of their community is a bridge or is, an, is a, a railroad track or is some other kind of defined boundary there? So any last thoughts about, uh, you know, those kind of three things of geography, police history and community and thinking, um, you know, what police leaders need to think about and kind of changing their districts or weighing those options as they do it? The only things I would probably touch on is the police calls for service like that is it is what it is, right? Like police calls for service, at least the public initiated ones. That's just what happens. That's the public calling for assistance. And that but also looking at sometimes using the reported crime is a little bit different, right? Because that's driven. That's a, like reported crime is an output of 
of the police and, and them writing a report about that, of something that may have occurred at that location. And sometimes that is driven by a lot of the police initiated calls for service versus public initiated. So whenever you're thinking about these, I know, all, I know analysts lean towards the reported crime, right? Because it's validated, there's supplements, there's, in, there's information in there, there's nice narratives. It's not coming from the call center, the communication center. That's probably from the county. But leveraging calls for service is something that, at least in my experience working with analysts, is not always used as much. But that's just my shameless plug for using calls for service more. But from an actual thinking about the boundaries and thinking about how to develop these type of superimposed lines in a in your jurisdiction or city limits, it's very much like the yellow line on an NFL football game on television. Like that line is not there in real life. Like right. the players are not <laughs> jumping over a yellow line because they're getting the first down. They they see the little red, you know, pole, the first down pole that they're they're yearning for, but like criminals don't care where your neighborhood start or where your district one and district two start and end. It's just something that when you're doing geospatial analysis within a city, sometimes just doing the analysis without those districts is really important to kind of get a better understanding, at least in the first step of the scanning portion of an analysis. You get to know what's happening generally, but just to know that the criminals don't care where your, your boundaries are. They're, yeah. they're going to do whatever they want to do, despite where your lines are, unless there's a railroad track or you know a bridge or a river in the way. But that's just something to always keep in mind is that no matter where you draw your boundaries, it's not other than state lines, which sometimes have an effect. But wherever you draw your lines, it may or may not stop the criminals, but you can still think strategically on how on how to leverage your resources more to help stop the criminals from bouncing over your over your your big yellow lines. Yeah, I like that because I think this is where several cities come to mind, you know, that we've looked at that perhaps they've done some type of geospatial analysis to identify, a, you know, an area to focus their resources on. And, you know, hopefully they've thought about one, what's the data source, right? Are they making their judgments based on the calls for service or are they making it mm-hmm. based on those reported crimes, like you mentioned? And then are they making it based on if they run their analysis with those superimposed boundaries, it would inherently change how things are sectioned off. Just for everybody who's listening, I think a great analogy would be, right, if I drew a grid over a city and asked the you know computer to analyze things within each grid, it's just going to compare within that defined area. Mm-hmm. And that's going to inherently weight volume differently because everything's broken up. Whereas if you look at the whole city or the whole county of the jurisdiction, then you're able to kind of compare that northeast corner to the southeast corner and see kind of where those things are. And that's, I think that kind of visualization of just seeing how the dots move or that kind of, you know, heat map moves when you do or don't have superimposed boundaries is really important. Hopefully that sparked a couple of ideas of like when you've seen it happen and kind of how did it change the way that you approached analysis for that aspect? So I don't know if that's something that you can kind of elaborate on for the listeners. Sure. Yeah. So I don't want to go too deep into the, into the geospatial, like some of the geoprocessing and and some of the backend algorithms and everything that the programs are running, but like it's the the phenomenon, or at least the analysis that we have to be, to be cognizant of when you're doing these type of geospatial analyses, when you have several boundaries within the that are, that are being part of the parameters of the analysis, is something called edge effects, which sometimes leads to an overestimation or even an underestimation of specific patterns near that boundary line. A lot of the calculations that you see, a lot of the hotspots or the density mapping they take into a lot of consideration of the neighboring areas, as Jessica, as you were mentioning, where it, it compares the amount of crime that, or whatever you're, whatever plotted, the amount of something that occurred and relevant to what happened next to it. And that's where the hotspot starts to happen. That's where the density calculation starts coming in. So if you just draw a line right next to where a dot happened, you're essentially potentially underestimating what occurred on the other side of that line because maybe data 
is there, but you're kind of restricting the parameter to say, don't, don't count that. Like, don't count that plot. Don't, even though they may be 10 feet apart from each other, but if there's a, you know, there's a line that is restricting it, the computer won't know to not or to include that. So it's, it's really important that, as you mentioned, when you're doing that kind of initial scanning analysis, that you really don't restrict it to, you don't restrict it to the smaller boundaries first. You always want to get the full picture. And this is also limiting because typically police agencies, at least municipal, they don't always have some of the data points of their adjacent jurisdictions. So you could have an interesting, a high density of incidents occurring right on the bound, right on a line, but it won't, it may or may not show up. It may be overestimated or underestimated because on the other side of that line is a different city and it doesn't count it. It doesn't think there's crime happening on the other side because there's no data points there because you don't have that adjacent jurisdiction's data. So it's it's really interesting when you're doing these type of analyses is like, well, maybe we request the data from the adjacent jurisdictions and see, is this a hotspot? Is it not? Just to make sure your the pattern that you're reporting on is at least not biased in the sense that some the computer thinks something there, thinks it's not there. Yeah, that's a, um, another kind of shameless plug for, you know, people should be sharing data, right? Because it, it is important <laughs> right. to kind of see what's happening. I think when we've mapped things, not uh, not just calls for service and reported crime, but also movements, right? And, the, and kind of crime pattern theory and other place network investigations is that being able to understand the where the person lives, where they perhaps have been involved in crime as a victim or an offender, and what are those pathways? And you're right, they they cross right over that yellow line that divides them from District 2 to District 4 because they don't see it on the field, right? They're just driving to whatever location they're on. But yeah, I think that's the, you know, other aspect of if you had, you know, neighboring data from another city in, in your jurisdiction, if you're a county agency or perhaps the other cities that, you know, are abutting up against your jurisdiction is that, are you just seeing some activity on the line because that's what you're limited to? Or is there actually a, a challenge in the neighborhoods that brush up against each other between those two jurisdictions? So, yeah. But there's, and then on the, this is the other side of the teeter-totter here is that other geospatial processes, they, you need to have a boundary right. because otherwise it's comparing the, all the dots on the map, all the incidents to potential incidents that happened in Antarctica. And it's saying, well, you know, there's a lot of dots here in your city, but there's no dots in Antarctica. So we're going to say your entire city is a hotspot. But it's like, well, that's not fair because Antarctica is not part of my jurisdiction. So it's like, that's where you need to limit. You need to limit the, the boundary and say, well, actually only focus, focus in this general region. And you can set it to be not just your city limits. You could set it just your city limits based off of the parameters that you need or that's necessary as part of the analysis. But just in a consideration, I don't want to get people, give people the wrong idea to think, oh, we can't have any boundaries in our analysis. It's like, well, no, you need some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, it's, it's, it's the discretion of the analysts to really understand the analysis that they're doing and they're they're leveraging as part of that program. So ArcGIS, at least ArcGIS Pro, does a very good job of explaining the different parameters and what you should or should not do. And I think their trainings are really, really well done when it comes to explaining, like, don't just throw data on a map and hit optimized hotspot and expect it to plot the perfect hotspot. It's just going to be a big blob on a map and you're, it's not going to be helpful. Um, yeah. So there's another shameless plug. If you're looking <laughs> to fine tune those optimized hotspot analyses or other geospatial analysis, we do have available intermediate classes for analysts if you're interested. And I'm the t- I, I teach those classes and kind of work with the side by side with the analysts and troubleshoot with them in different type of coaching sessions. That's definitely the important part that, you know, and all the conversations with the DEN panel about potentially creating, if we had the opportunity to create a new police agency or public safety agency, what would we call it? How would it be organized? And how do we know what's what's the right number of sworn or professional staff? And how do the workflows work? And, you know, even in our, our discussions in the episodes just before this one, talking about that, you know, we still kind of coalesced around, well, you have to have squads and you have to have reporting areas and beats, and then you have to have so many and and some of those things. And I threw the question out to the panel when we originally had these discussions of like, what if we didn't have beats? 
what if we didn't have those superimposed boundaries to assign people to squads or time? Like, what if we treated our entire jurisdiction as the pitch? What would we be doing in terms of analysis to determine what play or what kind of structure, how would we structure the team and the resources that we had on any given shift to do that? Like, would that even be possible? And what what would that lift look like from an analyst standpoint to say every day when the 12-hour shift comes in for my entire city, I have to have this operational plan based on the last X number of hours or X number of days. Like, and that does not include hey, you're still going to District 1 because you're the District 1 officer and you're going to District 2 because you're the District 2 officer. Can you just sit back for a moment and think about what would that actually look like if we kind of went away from these districts and reporting areas and just manage the resources based on data? Do you think that's possible at some point? Absolutely. I mean, typically when you have a newer crime analyst, that's what they're going to do. They're going to look at their dashboard or whatever they're creating. They provide decision makers information, they may not break up their the city into different jurisdictions just yet because they may not know to do that. Or and that sometimes just keeping it simple is is helpful. I think it's definitely possible. There needs to be a lot of it it requires a lot of communication and a lot of trust in the analysis to be to be true. It's I think it's very similar to when you think of like there has to be some sort of geographic boundary or jurisdiction to, to keep things defined, similar to, you know, a soccer pitch or a football field. But if you think of it like, I think, I think it's really unique if, if anyone's familiar with, again, another football reference. I'm not even a really a football fan, I'm more of a hockey fan. But regardless, at least for football, if you think of it as, think of the offensive line. There are some times where the offensive line can go up the field and block. Like I'm from the Philadelphia area. So Kelsey is the center. I think he's retiring. Regardless, he is always up front and he is leading the charge down the field and like blocking because he's quick. But other times he's not allowed to go up the field because of a certain play is being run. So like if you if a police department thinks in that nature of like it's a semi-structured officers are able to go and do this if X, Y and Z is met. If this is what's happening, officers do this. But if this is what's happening, officers only do this. So if you think of it as like, it just has to be a communicated strategy and clear. So you don't have a bunch of officers staying in the downtown area because they know a bar is letting out at two in the morning. So like some officers still need to go in the rural areas and the less populated areas, you know, to do roving patrols to make sure, you know, just looking out for potential breaking and entering or burglaries or whatever. So there has to be some structure there, but also some flexibility. So yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely possible, but sometimes from the analyst perspective, it's entirely possible. It just needs to, you need to have the decision makers and, and a, a really well-versed communicative analyst to talk about the patterns and trends of what's happening throughout the entire city and then determine a strategy based off of what that data is telling them and looking at it from different seasons because the summer surge, which I've heard, I like to think of it as the fall surge because I always like, Sometimes I see a lot more crime happening when the students go back to school in, in, in late late summer. But I think it's entirely possible that you don't necessarily need the beats or need, need districts within your city. However, I do find, and this is going a little bit out of my analytical seat, but the relationships officers are able to make with the population in the community when they are assigned to a specific area it helps with the trust and building those relationships. So there's definitely some up and downs to the idea of the free-for-all, not the free-for-all, but a strategic fluid. What did I, what did I say earlier? The uh, structured, structured fluidity. fluidity. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to make sure that makes it into some future trainings and then some future <laughs> sessions for folks. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is where, you know, we could probably talk about this for a whole nother hour thinking through what about drive time? What about this? What about that? And and kind of go down that analytical hole. But I want to wrap this up with just some kind of final thoughts for folks that listen in as we've been on this path of rethinking what public safety or what public safety responses look like. I'll ask you the big question you've heard me ask several people on on site visits. If you were chief for a day or maybe a month, what would be some things that you would give a try 
to see if it would would be different for, you know, your patrol and, and investigative staff that are out there trying to respond. If I were a chief for a day, I would, I think it's really important for the people in the field to see what the data is saying. But I also think it's really important for the, the people in the data to see what's happening in the field. I always bring in the, uh, the analogy to scouting prospects for sports. You have the data people who tell you, you have to draft all these individuals because they have underlying metrics, but you also have some of the scouts who only do the eye tests and they, they know in their gut when they see a good prospect. And I always relate that similar to, to policing is you have, you have the officers with the experience and then you have the data people who only kind of look at the pieces of paper and sometimes they don't they don't pop their head up and realize you know there is there is a community around them that not just a computer screen but i mean chief for a day i would it's almost have them shoulder serve each other I, I always say analysts need to be doing more ride alongs and working with the sworn staff on their patrols and then vice versa sometimes having patrol staff come by the analytical units and learn what what are the analysts seeing and what are the analysts seeing before they have to make it look pretty for a presentation. Like show them, not like the really ugly data, but at least like (laughs) pieces of the ingredients to make the cake. Because sometimes the ingredients, the officers will be like, wait a second, I didn't know that. And the analyst not realizing that was a really important ingredient like eggs, but eggs was also something that is really valuable for the officers to know about something that may be occurring. So Definitely more collaboration between, that's what I would change. It's not, not a great answer, but. <laughs> There's no wrong answer here. There's no wrong answer. Collab- I think we, yeah. we throw out more a couple of searching. ideas, whether we, we all agreed on them or maybe a few of us fell on some swords when we were in disagreement with the rest of the team. But no, I think that's important. I think the, you know, it's almost like an undercover CEO for a day of like, would the chief be able, even if they had held those positions before, would the chief be able to kind of go back and see how things are made today, right? Like, because they it's been years since they were in patrol or it's, you know, when they were in patrol, there wasn't crime analysis and there wasn't this data driven. And so do they really understand what's happening under the hood? And how does that help the translation between the two entities in the process? I think it's really important. And not just giving the chief the best patrol officer on, on shift that time, because everything's going to be, you know, sunshine and puppies with yeah, but they give the all-star officer, you know, showing the chief around if they were, you know, the CEO or the undercover chief. Putting them in, in the cars with some of the officers are some of the naysayers and some of the cynics. So that's always important to hear all the perspectives. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, Neil, I greatly appreciate you contributing to our conversations here on The Den. For those of you that are listening, we will be putting some of those resources that we mentioned or other things that you might have heard come up during our conversation today in the show notes. Be sure to check those out, as well as anything else on the website for, for trainings, coaching sessions, and events held by ID Analytics. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about today's topic, Idea Analytics, or work with them, visit their website, analyticsbyidea.com. There, you'll find their latest blog posts, case studies, and contact information. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, on your preferred podcasting platform. See you next time.